Well, good morning to you all. Our passage today follows right on from the one last week. So last week we had the parable of the rich fool. And in many respects, what follows provides the remedy for the situation that the rich fool found himself in. His treasure was bound on earth. And when his life was demanded from him, that treasure was to be of no use to him because he could take none of it with him and he had no treasure stored up in heaven. And so Jesus here presents the remedy to that situation and that is, of course, treasure that will endure. So if you wouldn't mind turning to Luke chapter 12, we're going to read together from verse 22. Luke chapter 12, reading from verses 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now the first thing we need to notice here is to whom this part of the teaching is addressed. Having told the parable of the rich fool to the huge crowd that had gathered there, Jesus now turns aside and he directs his attention to his disciples. Now these were the ones who had left their fishing nets and left their tax collection booths, basically left their day jobs to follow him. And at least some of them presumably had families. We know for sure that Peter was married because in his gospel Matthew speaks about Peter's mother-in-law. And Paul also makes reference to some of the other apostles being married. Some of them perhaps had responsibility for ageing parents. Some of them perhaps owned land that needed working. Undoubtedly, they had many concerns. 
as to how they would fulfil these obligations to family in the light of their current situation. If you are a fisherman who is no longer working the fishing nets or a tax collector who is no longer collecting taxes, how exactly are you going to make ends meet and support your family? And if, as the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, as Jesus taught in the, in the parable of the rich fool, if in that kingdom the right thing to do with a bumper crop is not to store it up so that you can enjoy yourself as much as you like, then what's going to happen if things go wrong? What's going to happen if things don't work out as planned? What if I need more to live on? What if I get sick? What if my barns burn down and there's nothing left? What if I just don't have enough? What if I can never purchase a house? What if my car breaks down? There are many, many what ifs in life. Michel de Montaigne was one of the most significant philosophers of the French Renaissance. Nearly 500 years ago, he wrote these words. My life has been filled with terrible misfortune, he said, most of which never happened. And how true that is. We worry about so many things and most of them just never happen. I think if we're all honest, we have some what-ifs that occupy our minds, at least from time to time. Financial issues, relationship issues, work-related issues, concerns for our children's future. You will know what your particular concerns are in your situation and in your own family. But for those of us who would call ourselves disciples, most of these concerns boil down to one key question. Is the Lord really sufficient for me? Now Jesus was elsewhere very clear that discipleship is demanding and that each one must consider the cost of their own discipleship. And so now, having just told the story of one who stored up for him th himself things on earth but was not rich towards God, he turns to these ones who have put their faith in him, his disciples, who have sacrificed plenty to follow him, and he addresses their unspoken concerns. And you can almost imagine him telling the parable to that great crowd and then turning to these ones that he loves so much with compassion in his eyes to address his disciples. This is what he says to them. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. We worry about all sorts of things. For these disciples, it was the basics, feeding and clothing themselves and perhaps their families. How were they going to manage that when they had left their source of income behind? 
For them it was the basics, but for us we seem to have perfected the art of worrying about so many things. We've taken it to a new level. For some there is a genuine concern, no doubt, about food and clothing. How will they afford their food and clothing and paying the bills? But for others there is just this whole smorgasbord of things to choose from to worry about. We start with something relatively small and we roll it round and round and round in our minds with all of the what-ifs that go along with it until what we're pushing around in there is consuming a lot of our energy. It's actually making life difficult for us because dealing with it is distracting us from everything else. And that is exactly what the sense of the original word translated in the NIV from Greek as worry or in the ESV as being anxious. That is, it's the sense of what that word means, being distracted or divided. The root word from which the verb is formed carries this sense of being pulled in opposite directions or divided into parts. So the verb literally means to be divided or distracted. That's what it is to worry in this case. And that's what it was like when Jesus went to visit the home of Mary and Martha. You might remember one of them was sitting, listening to Jesus, taking care of, um, taking time out to, to just sit in his presence. But the other one, she was distracted and divided by so many concerns of life. Now, Jesus goes on to explain why we shouldn't worry or why his disciples shouldn't worry. The first reason that he gives is because worrying is foolish. Now, to illustrate this point, he turns to the example of the ravens. Now, ravens were considered to be a very unclean animal because they spent their time hanging out in garbage dumps and feeding off whatever scraps they could find there or carcasses of other animals that were around, dead animals. So ravens were to be avoided at all costs because they were an unclean animal. Jesus says, consider the ravens. If God can provide even for these defiled creatures, surely you can count on him to provide for you. That's basically what he's saying. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store up food for themselves. How could they store up food for themselves? They don't even have a storeroom or a barn, yet God makes sure that all of their needs are taken care of. To worry about such things is to be like the man in the parable that he'd just been telling the crowd. The man who by his actions demonstrated that he believed that life consisted of an abundance of possessions. His mindset was locked into a kingdom on earth mentality rather than a kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. And for that he's forever been branded the rich fool. His attitude and his actions demonstrated that he did not fear God. 
The second thing, or the second reason that Jesus points to as to why we should not worry is because worrying is pointless. And I guess the very fact that it is pointless makes it even more foolish to keep worrying. Now, before we go any further with this part of the argument, we have to have a very clear mindset about what worrying is. Worrying is not giving due consideration to all of the decisions and responsibilities of life. Worrying is not about thinking through the best plan of action to take and making a responsible decision. That's called being a responsible human being. Worry goes beyond that. Worry occurs when all of these things occupy undue space in our heads, when we become divided or distracted, to go back to that earlier definition. And since by worrying, none of us will succeed in adding a single hour to our lives, in fact, we might succeed in taking some hours from our lives, maybe even weeks or years, in very severe cases, Jesus says that worrying is pointless. Now, something that you may not know about me is that when I was a child, I was a terrible worrier. I used to lie awake at night worrying about all sorts of things. Was the front door locked? Had my parents turned off the stove before they went to bed? In fact, I was so bad that I even used to worry about my worrying because my worrying kept me awake at night and I worried that I wasn't getting enough sleep. And my mum had a solution to that. She said, she told me that lying very still was just the same as sleeping, so I used to lie very still and worry. <laughs> but mostly though, for whatever reason, I worried about the house catching on fire. It might have been the fact that we lived in a huge house and it might have been the fact that my dad insisted on us having fire drills where he would throw a harness out the window and show us what it would be like if he had to lower us three floors out the window. So you can get a feel uh, for what this was like. Um, this is the little village that I used to live in in Northern Ireland. Um, that was the street that I lived in, and this here is the house that I used to live in. Now, it looks beautiful there, a little seaside village. Can I tell you, mostly it didn't look like that. My, most of my memories are of trudging up that street knee-deep in snow on the way home from school, or in hail or sleet or drizzle. It seemed to be that when it wasn't snowing or hailing, it was drizzling. But... Someone caught it on a nice day in that particular photo. Now, our house was right next door to the Catholic Church here. And the house was huge, and the reason that it was huge was because it used to be where the retired nuns lived. Um, and when they didn't have maybe enough nuns to fill the house, I don't know, or it just got very run down, because it was very run down when we purchased it, they decided to sell. And my father bought it and then spent 
every waking hour renovating it. I just remember he spent inordinate amounts of hours in the basement of that place because there was structurally something wrong with it, wood rot or something that needed a lot of attention. Now I remember that when, oh, to give you an idea of what the house looked like, that's the house from the other street. And so you can see there was like a basement here and then one level, two levels, three levels, and then there was a tiny level up here and then there was an attic. And you could go right through, like there was no roof between the attic and everything else. You could just go, go in there if you wanted to. Now, I remember when my school scrapbooks used to come home from school mum would flick through them and they would have picture after picture of houses on fire in them and you know, these days you'd be taken to a psychologist but I never was. Um, why am I telling you all this? I, I'm telling you all of this to demonstrate what I got for all of my worrying. Absolutely nothing. I used to sleep up here in this room. It was a huge room. Um, ironically, all of my siblings slept in that one room. We could have had two or three bedrooms each, but we didn't. We all chose to sleep in one room. And there were many empty rooms in that house. Um, and I remember one night, as per usual, my siblings were fast asleep and I was lying in bed, as usual, worrying about something. I don't know what it was on that particular night, but the realisation hit me that the room was glowing orange and flickering. And so I got up and went to the window and discovered that, well, there used to be a, a bigger tree here, that the tree was on fire, the hedge was on fire, and the pole that held up the electricity wires was also on fire and the flames were licking up the pole. So I sprinted downstairs to alert my parents who were downstairs having dinner with my uncle and aunt and all four of them said, stop worrying and get back to bed. No one would even get out of their seat to come and look at this fire which they believed to be a figment of my imagination. Eventually, my persistence uh, caused the uncle to get up. He, he humoured me to come and look at this imaginary fire and of course, pretty soon there were fire brigades rolling up the street. Another time I remember looking out this back window here at night time and declaring to my dad that it was raining fire on our house. And then of course you can imagine the reaction I got to that. Stop being stupid. Stop worrying. It's not raining fire on our house. Well, I pestered and pestered and eventually someone looked out the window and it was raining fire down on our house. Um, our chimneys had all caught fire and it was spitting out <laughs> sparks and fireworks in all sorts of directions. And so it was my job to hold the front door open while the fire brigade traipsed in and out and in and out in their gumboots. What did all my worrying achieve for me? Absolutely nothing. No one would even believe me when on two occasions there actually were fires in the place. All I got was a lot of sleepless nights. And it was a good thing that I found Jesus a few years later because all of that worry taken into adult life 
would have not gone well at all for me, I don't think. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life, says Jesus, or maybe in my case, who of you by worrying will even be able to convince your own parents that the house is on fire when actually it is on fire? Since you cannot even do this very little thing, why do you worry about everything else? The third reason Jesus gives as to why we should not worry is because it demonstrates a lack of faith. And to demonstrate this point, Jesus turns to the lilies of the field. Now, most of us imagine lilies as the beautiful white things that Estery and Jane put in their flower arrangements, the trumpet sort of lilies. Most probably what Jesus is referring to are these. These are called Turk's cap lilies. They're beautiful, slender, scarlet red, very delicate. They hang nodding in clusters. They're bright and showy and they grow wild all around the areas around Galilee. And they come into flower around about the time that Jesus was thought to have delivered his Sermon on the Mount. You can imagine that with their colour and with their height, when they come into flower among the fields of grass, they're pretty hard to miss. And so everyone who heard Jesus' words would have known exactly what he was talking about when he said that not even Solomon in all of his splendour was dressed like one of these. These are a truly beautiful and spectacular flower. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? These are the concerns of the pagan world, says Jesus. His disciples do not need to concern themselves with such things because the Father knows that they need them and he'll provide them for him. Oswald Chambers famously said in this regard, all our fret and worry is caused by calculating without God. If you take God out of the equation, there is a lot in life to fret and worry about, but not so when you're calculating with him in the equation. On the 11th of July 1955, US President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed a bill that would require the inscription, In God We Trust, to be placed on all notes and coins in the United States. What a beautiful inscription to have on any nation's currency. Every financial transaction since that time potentially has been a reminder that there is nothing at all to worry about for those who put their trust in God. Seek his kingdom, says Jesus, and all these things will be given to you. The final reason not to worry is not explicitly given by Jesus here, but it is implied. He says, do not be afraid, little flock. Worry and fear, they're like an old married couple. Very comfortable in each other's company. Rarely, if ever, 
is one of them seen without the other. Do not fear, little flock, says Jesus. It is the most commonly used phrase in the whole Bible, in both the Old and the New Testaments. Fear not, have no fear, be not afraid, or as it is here, do not be afraid. In all, it occurs about 145 times throughout the Bible. And those of you who've heard Pastor Bruce preach on, on a regular basis will remember that he, he talks about something being said once is important, twice is very important, three times is extremely important. Well, what is 145 times on that basis? It is out of this world, mind-blowingly important. God wants his little flock to understand beyond any shadow of doubt that they have nothing to fear and therefore nothing to worry about. Verse 31, seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. And then in verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So seek his kingdom. It is your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is something that gives him great joy to hand over the kingdom to the little flock. Exchange your worries for the peace that passes all understanding and your fear for the confidence that comes in being a child of the father. The king of that kingdom was right there with them in their presence. And in a sense, that kingdom would be placed into their hands when Jesus would ascend later into heaven. The my father that he spoke of so often to them, my father, my father, here is your father. It is your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. He is the father of this little flock and in spite of their very small size, he would entrust them with the kingdom here on earth. And because he is their father, they can trust him. Like the sheep would trust their shepherd, they can trust him to protect and to provide for all of their needs. None of them and none of us by worrying could add a single hour to life, but by his resurrection, Jesus would add forever to the lives of his little flock. Our passage today concludes with a description of what this new kingdom is like. It is a place where life does not consist of an abundance of possessions, and it is a place where the poor are looked after by those who have plenty. Sell your possessions, urges Jesus. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now we all know the command, do not worry. I'm sure most of us have read it before in the Bible. 
but sometimes it is easier said than done. Uh, we still live here on, on earth and there are plenty of things to distract and divide our attention. Reminds me of a story of a young pilot recently had attained his license, um, didn't have a huge number of hours up and was flying when conditions changed quite suddenly and found he had very little visibility um, and he was very unsure of the weather conditions and what they were going to do because they weren't doing as had been predicted to do and he needed to land the plane. And as he radioed the control tower and discussed with them, it very quickly became evident to those who were in the control tower that panic was rising in this young man's voice. And a voice came to him over the radio from the control tower saying, all you need to do is to obey the commands. We will take care of everything else. And in many respects, that is what our Father says. You need to obey the commands and allow him to take care of all other considerations. Now still, it is easier said than done. And we are not the first people on earth to have struggled. We're not the first believers on earth to have struggled to contain some of our worries. In our heads, we know that the Good Shepherd will always provide for his little flock, and yet worry and anxiety are things that many people, including many believers, still struggle with. Now, those of you who are familiar with the biographies of Martin Luther will know that even this giant of the faith also struggled at times with bouts of anxiety, uh, with times of doubt, and even at times with despair or depression. After he refused to renounce his views before an imperial meeting, Luther, who had by then been labelled a heretic by the Catholic Church, was whisked away for his own safety to a remote castle. And there he spent many, many long hours alone. It was during this time that he would eventually translate much of the Bible into German. And it was here where he fought many battles against anxiety, attacks of doubt and despair. For Luther, the Christian life was a constant battle with the devil. Now legend has it that it was during this time that he threw an inkwell at the devil. Now, there's probably a lot more legend in that story than there is truth, but it made for good tourism at the castle. <laughs> and it also made for some pretty impressive artwork. You can see one of the pieces of artwork up there of Luther throwing an inkwell at the devil. Numerous sources, however, quote the words that Luther would speak during such attacks from the devil. He was said to shout out, I am baptised, I believe in Christ crucified. Regardless of what Satan might try to whisper in his ear, these were the promises that he leaned on. I am baptised, I'm a believer of Christ crucified. 
And in effect, what those words mean is that I'm part of the Father's little flock. I have nothing to fear, no need to worry, and Satan, you cannot harm me. So if worry or fear or anxiety or even at times despair are a problem or something that you have to deal with, you might like to draw strength from the example of Martin Luther and stake your claim. Speak out the promises of God over your life. Remind yourself who you are in Christ and how valuable you are to him and just how well cared for the Father's little flock is. Let the devil know that you believe in Christ crucified and that you will be having none of his lies and he can do nothing to harm you. Will you join me in prayer? Thank you, Father God, for these beautiful words of Jesus, words that were spoken over his disciples, words that are spoken over us today. Do not worry. How much more valuable are you? Seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. Father, how good and kind you are to reassure all those who would seek to follow you with these very gentle and very hopeful words. We thank you, Father.